Hi, listeners, and welcome to another episode of No Priors. This week, we're joined by Alyssa Henry, who recently retired from being longtime CEO of Square within Block. Before that, she was the vice president of AWS, running, amongst other things, the storage products or the digital storage bucket for the world. And before AWS, she ran order management software at Amazon and started her tech career at Microsoft. She remains on the boards of Intel and Confluent and was previously on the board of Unity. I'm a huge admirer of Alyssa's leadership. Welcome, Alyssa. Great to be here. Let us start by talking about Square. You led there for almost a decade through enormous growth. Was there a single moment that most defined your experience? I don't know if there's a single moment that most defined, although there were there were a ton of different moments. Obviously, we were known as the Little White Reader Company and the Pharma Markets Payments Company when I joined. Cash App wasn't really a thing. You know, title wasn't even a thought. Crypto wasn't a thing. Um, the Square business transformed from that little white reader into um, you know, a much larger business serving um, businesses of many, many different sizes, from still the smallest to also you know, large stadiums and multinational companies. So the moment that really was, I don't know if it was most defining, but one of the, the, I still tear up a little bit about it, is actually the day we IPO'd. And what was so exciting about that was, you know, if you looked at the sign that was outside the New York Stock Exchange, it was covered with just the logos of all these small businesses, right? And and the the note was, you know, the neighborhood is going public. And I think that really kind of sums up, you know, just the mission-driven, purpose-driven organization that's where Block is and was and um, and just the impact that the company has had on just countless um, small businesses, helping them give them the tools and the technology that in many ways had only been previously available to, you know, the likes of Amazon and Walmarts of the world. It's funny. I was a early investor in Square, a small one. And then I um, worked at Twitter. So I worked with Jack in two very different contexts. The way that he ran the, the two businesses was radically different, right? I think um, it's everything from the org structure where Square was always more sort of GM slash business unit almost driven versus Twitter, which was always sort of functionally oriented or, you know, often functionally oriented. Um, how did how did your career shift over time? Because I think you started off more on sort of platform and technology, and then you took over a big business area. And I'm a little bit curious about that evolution and how you went from being somebody who's done a variety of things. They're more product and engineering driven to somebody who's really running a whole business area. Well, my career's kind of gone back and forth between product and engineering between um, functional leadership and general management leadership a couple of times over you know my several decades in in tech you know I started as an engineer and then moved into product manage well, and engineering management then back into IC as a product manager and then into a general management type role at Microsoft, then back into a functional role when I moved to Amazon, then back into a general manager role with PL, and then back into a functional role when I joined Square with the back. So it's I've gone back and forth. I do like the general manager, the end and you know, multi-discipline, multi-functional leadership roles. Um, it just uses more parts of the brain. And as you get more senior and senior in leadership, you know, the job becomes more and more about how you both instigate and resolve conflict um, in order to kind of keep things on the edge, like on that creativity and execution threshold. And um, the kind of those, those problems in terms of either generating or resolving conflict are just more interesting when they're multifunctional, multidimensional in nature. 
it, for me. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I guess like in the context of um, Square and its foray into AI, there's a set of areas that traditionally have been areas where payments companies have sort of applied ML, you know, so that'd be things like fraud detection or other areas like that. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how that evolution occurred at Square and what areas you, you find most intriguing going forward? Well, as you state in financial services, um, application of machine learning has, um, you know, has been key for a long period of time. And particularly if you look at the, you know, a business like Square, where you've got millions of small customers and it's, it's not a what you you don't really have a one-to-one relationship with the vast majority of your customers just because of the scale and the size of them. Um, you really have to bring technology to bear in terms of understanding like a whole range of things from, you know, who's a good actor and who's a bad actor um, to, you know, who do you target for a specific product who, who's going to be most likely to find, you know, a marketing product useful or least likely to find it useful or that sort of thing. So there's lots of internal applications and have been for years um, in terms of machine learning, manage risk, you know, manage fraud, as well as to cross sell and grow the business. And then more recently, even kind of prior to this kind of latest um, big shift in the AI landscape, you know, we, we were using GPT-2 um, as part of a, the Square Messages product, um, being a, you know, a, a virtual assistant to help um, customers you know, answer responses to customer inquiries or a variety of things. But what, what's so exciting to me about um, kind of really how the landscape has changed and the, the technology advances in the last year are how much better the tools have gotten and how much more broadly applicable they are in terms of bringing kind of expert assistance to much larger audience, right? But it, it effectively unlocked the consumer and started to then show what this technology could do um, when then, you know, further integrated into domain-specific areas. You know, you go talk to small business owners, most of them will tell you, gosh, I know I should be doing marketing, right? Like, I, I know I, if I was more effective in doing that and reaching out to my customers, you know, I could drive more business. But I got to tell you, you know, I work all day, and then I come home at night and I've got to take care, you know, take care of my family. And then it's 8 p.m. and I'm starting to think about, gosh, you know, do I just need to chill for a minute or, you know, or am I going to spend the next three hours trying to, you know, create an image and write text for the campaign and everything like that. And what they tell you is like, I know I should be doing this stuff, but it's just too hard and it takes too much time. And I'm not an expert. Like I got into doing this because I love cupcakes, not because I like writing email marketing, right? Um, and so what's exciting about all this technology, you know, that's one example, but there's so many of these kind of different things where um, just the, the ease of use and the accessibility opens up what previously was effectively just massive white space, right? It was customers or people that if it was easy enough to use, if it was accessible enough, if it was cheap enough, they go, yeah, that would be, that would be huge for me. But it was, wasn't accessible. It was too expensive. It was too hard to go find and hire a marketing consultant to do it for me. And the ROI wasn't there and blah, blah, blah. So I think this, this, you know, the evolution that's occurring right now is, is exciting in part just because of really the, you know, previously unaddressed demand um, that it's unlocking. You've mentioned some really compelling ways that um, different SMBs can really use generative AI. And I think one of the things that is a little bit under-discussed in the AI world is the impact of this technology, uh, particularly generative AI to e-commerce, 
or other forms of commerce and fintech in other areas. Are there other areas that you think nobody's really addressed yet or that are big opportunities in this space? Because, I mean, adopting GPT-2 was super early, right? You all use this technology before most people were aware that this was a big deal. And then to your point, there's some really interesting things that you've been doing in terms of merchant coaching and other areas that, you know, I think are, are really fascinating. Are, are there big areas of e-commerce that you just think are going to be swept up in this technology that people aren't talking about enough? Well, I think almost every aspect of kind of a small business, you can find applications and, you know, some of it, the technology is not quite there yet, um, but is rapidly getting there in terms of some of the finance and numbers and quant pieces. Um, you know, some of the, the, quantitative hallucinations have been a little bit more than um, than the others, but but it's all rapidly going. And I think it's, you know, if you look at the largest e-commerce players, you know, the Amazons and the Walmarts, right? Like they've been investing heavily in this area. So, you know, the, the larger e-commerce companies um, have definitely embraced. And frankly, in e-commerce in general, it's been for these retailers or for e-commerce retail platforms, because one of the things is um, if you're in e-commerce, basically everything's already digitized. So um, one of the difference between um, in-store commerce and particularly local commerce and, um, and e-commerce is the fact that, you know, just to basically to operate in e-commerce, you have to, you have to digitize, you know, you have to have images to, you know, show what your product is. You have to show, you, you have to have, you know, compelling description of it. You have to track inventory, you know, so there's a bunch of stuff that you have to have, which, Many, this is again some of the white space for small businesses, local business in particular, is um, the rate of digitization in store significantly lags the rate of digitization online, and it goes back to it goes back to the fundamental problem of it's too either hard or expensive to to effectively digitize. And again, this is where you know really in kind of all aspects, I think the um, Gen AI is lowering the, you know, making 10x faster, 10x cheaper kind of thing, right? You know, we'd launched a, Squared launched a product a couple of years ago called um, Photo Studio because we heard from businesses that they wanted to sell online, but they didn't have product photos, right? And so the first iteration of it is we actually had a photo, like a physical photo studio in Brooklyn. <laughs> and, it, and we had a 360 camera and people would ship us their products, right? You know, and, and, and we take what looked like professional grade photos for them, which was because we were addressing this blocker that so many of them had to getting online, right? Um, but you fast forward and we then evolved it into iPhone app that was using, you know, again, less mature versions of, you know, image detection and generation to use AI to remove backgrounds and things like that. Again, making it easier. You don't have to ship, reducing the cost. And now if you look at um, what you can achieve with some of the latest stuff, like the, the barriers come down even further. Like, so it, it's incredible kind of all of these different things, you know, and then I'm talking about, you know, on the kind of selling side of the revenue generation side. Um, but I think there's a, there's a lot of back office as well too, um, a, you know, from employee um, employee management and tools and communication to finances, you know, predicting and understanding what your cash flow actually looks like and and what is your top selling product and all these sorts of things where a lot of the data is is accessible. But again, 
you know, most of these owners, they're not MBAs, right? They didn't, the, the line is they got into business and they like working in their business, but not on their business. And so the business side of it is not the interesting part. It's the craft or the, you know, or the customer interaction and the hospitality of all those things. And so I think the, all of these advances that we're seeing are making it easier um, and will make it easier um, to operate with better expertise and less time and effort um, on the business side of the business. There's so much there. I, I feel like one thing that's been a surprise to many tech people, business people has been um, how much latent demand there is for content generation of, of different forms, right? In like every business context. I remember um, like a year ago with things like MidJourney or with Stable Diffusion, like, you know, progressively better diffusion models, in general, there was a vein of like, oh, like, that's cute. And it's like a, a novelty. But really, how many artists are there in the world? And how many people are really interested in art for the sake of art? And you see it apply to um, everything from uh, like product photography to being able to generate f like short form or spokesperson video. And, you know, the number of people, as you said, that want to avoid the camera like you know the professional studio in brooklyn or don't want to be on camera at all or um uh, just want to do um uh like really attractive product photography or marketing and sales videos at one one hundredth and one one thousandth the cost is it's quite large right and so I, I think it's like really interesting to think about the demand categories here for these new capabilities which like a lot of them don't feel like traditional software businesses yeah, I, mean, I think that's always been one of the amazing things about technology. One of the things that, um, you know, I find just so compelling about our industry is that when you can increase ease of use and accessibility, you just unlock all this latent demand, this white space that exists, right? Um, and you see it over and over again, right? You know, originally, what, who was the market for a word processor? Well, it's all the secretaries, right? Like, I know they're the only ones that are going to... Now, everyone uses a word processor, right? You know, the TAM just exploded, you know. Um, and even, you know, taking the Square example, how many people could accept a credit card and take a payment, right? Like, but there were all these really small businesses that were completely underserved because it was too expensive and too hard, right? And, you know, you make something better, cheaper, faster, and all of a sudden you unleash you know, all of this latent demand. And I think that's, we're in the process of that with this technology in in sort of, multiple vectors. Um, and so I think it is really going to reshape a lot of things. And it's not just as people like to talk about, oh, well, AI is going to take away jobs. It's like, yeah, well, maybe, but like, but a lot of it is actually work that's not getting done that could be get, that someone could get done, right? Um, you know, it's like sending that marketing campaign or it's um, actually, you know, putting together, you know, a, a real logo or it's, you know, writing better copy that actually is compelling and descriptive, the things that just were never going to get done otherwise. And and now they're getting done. Yeah. Can I uh, ask you to tell us the story of how you guys ended up um, playing with GPT-2 for, uh, I think it was like customer, like merchant facing responses to begin with, because that was, we have other, um, a lot and I, I think each have other portfolio companies that were experimenting, but it was quite early. Like it didn't really work or it took a lot of work to get something useful out from a yeah. just messaging perspective. I would like to say it was maybe more strategic than it was, but Vinod Kosla was uh, on our board for years and um, he had a portfolio company 
um, that was being courted by another company to to acquire them. And Vino called me up and said, Alyssa, you, you should go talk to these guys and see if maybe like Square might be a, an interesting place for them. So I met the two founders, Stanford Machine Learning PhD folks, and they walked me through kind of what they were doing on um, a slightly different context, but just got super excited about the potential there as well as the the two people on their team. And so we acquired that company in, I want to say 2018 or something, and um, and put them to work on kind of stitching together but some of these customer-facing experiences, um, leveraging some of the early work that they'd done. And because, again, we just knew that, you know, there was a real customer problem for Square merchants. We, what well, you know, goal was to apply technology to make our um merchant jobs easier and give them time back to to focus on things that matter. So that team's still going strong and continue to uh, you know expand the capabilities and obviously move further down the line in terms of models and whatnot. So one more thing on Square, I feel like I'd be remiss in not asking you after the almost decade you were working there, like what else, even AI aside, do people not understand is changing in e-commerce right now? More of the same in digitization, anything else you, you think like trends people should understand? Digitization is a big one. And I'd say integration. It's even more so true in in-person commerce versus e-commerce, but it's true in both places in that you go watch a business owner or their team kind of work and you're like, you, you watch their workflows, right? And um, even the stuff that's digitized in many cases, what you see is they've got, you know, they've got multiple browser windows open and they're cutting and pasting from one tool into another tool or they're downloading from this, you know, and then they're emailing it to that. And like the, um, I think the, the workflows, even, even the ones that are digitized are not integrated. And then of course the ones that are, that are manual and not, not digital, you know, the integration is worse or non-existent. Um, and so I think there's just a huge opportunity and I think we'll see the next phase kind of evolve, you know, in the same way that, you know, in many industries and in many parts of tech, what you see is kind of best of breed early on, um, where different parts of the landscape are built out. But then ultimately what you see, it, you know, it's this classic bundling and unbundling. Right now, a lot of the stuff is unbundled. And I think we're going to go into a bundling phase um, because it addresses a number of things. It, it addresses integration. Um, and it also, you can typically offer a bundle, um, you know, for less than the sum of the individual parts and that kind of thing. So I think we're, I think we're going to see, you know, from an industry perspective, kind of more aggregation and more bundling um, because we've been through when we went to, when we went from in-person to e-commerce, a bunch of categories kind of got created and we're going to see the, the consolidation and the bundling of categories and the blurring of lines between them. I want to go back a little bit uh, in your history. So you were previously at the forefront of the cloud revolution for a long time as the first GM for AWS storage. And, um, you know, just beyond storage to responsible for a huge number of innovations in computing that we all use now, S3, Glacier, Lambda, EBS, I'm missing some. Um, how do you think about, like, there, there are a lot of, uh, there's a lot of discussion of AI changing the cloud services landscape. Like, do you see this as a new wave of computing? It, I mean, certainly there's a bunch of new aspects to it. Um, you know, cloud computing historically, you know, very, very CPU intensive, some GPU as well too, um, various use cases, but obviously, you know, AI, just seeing an explosion in GPU based compute. Obviously there's, 
tons of demand right now just for compute capacity um, for training. It's not replacing existing workloads. It's adding new workloads um, as people are figuring out how to then expand, you know, companies like Square Block figuring out then how to, uh, you know, how are we going to apply these technologies and then where do where are we going to go do, you know, go do our training and, and whatnot. So I, I think it's an exciting time. Um, you know, one of the fun parts about being in technology is like you just you get these big shifts that happen. Um, you know, so it's, it's never a tall moment. And uh, I, I think the race is definitely heating up. And, you know, it's in many ways, I think it's a land grab and, you know, lots of different players are figuring out how they go grab land. One thing that's interesting about this wave is how uh, monolithic the services are today. Uh, like, in you, I think you can think of this as essentially year one or year two of um, having access to uh, these large foundation model services, right? But the interfaces are really simple. It's not even you're just talking about bundling. It's like a single natural language call versus if you contrast that to um, like what, you know, the, the joke is you can't even keep track of like the Amazon services released, right? <laughs> like, do you think we get a wealth of services over time the way many services have emerged in cloud or it's just you you lob in? you know, more and more complicated prompts to a single model? Um, it's probably both. Um, the, you know, if you go back AWS at the beginning, right, um, you know, S3 was sort of the you know, the first, SQS was actually technically the first, but S3 was really kind of the first service and incredible, sim- incredibly simple API, right? Um, like, you know, four REST operators or something. What was compelling about it is it was so easy to use, right? Um, and then, oh, Obviously, a whole bunch of stuff sprang up around it. You know, S3 became not just, you know, a first, well, it was a first-class service done right with you know, direct customer relationships, but it became foundational as well for many of the other services that were built on top of it, right? So you go you go trace kind of the, you know, the, the call stack, if you will, within most AWS services, probably, I would argue, probably all of them. And, the, you know, you can go find S3 somewhere as a component of it. Take OpenAI, started you know, relatively simple, but, and, you know, and adding to stuff, in fact, making them, you know, ease of use, actually, even though adding a new capabilities in some ways, adding functionality that makes call patterns even simpler, right, with threads and messages and some of these other things. And so I suspect we'll see, continue to see an evolution where we're going to get some more capabilities that extend some of the core foundational um, services. We're going to see work that makes using them continue to simplify things that can be simplified. And then I do think we're going to see, you know, um, some specialization as well, some additional model. I mean, you're already seeing some of this today, right? If you look at, um, you know, like the aggregate, I call you know, Amazon bedrock, you know, the aggregate service at some level, right? Where, you know, you can host and run all of these other different models. You know, it's a single service, but it's kind of a, it's kind of a bundle, if you will, of a variety of models. So, We'll see. It's usually some combination of the both. Um, and uh, I, I agree with you. We're, we're super early on right now. If you look at the major cloud providers today, um, two of the three have major alignment with a underlying foundation model or foundation model company. So, for example, Google's, you know, uh, very publicly building out Gemini is sort of its next generation foundation model. Um, OpenAI has close alignment with Microsoft. Do you think it matters whether or not Amazon has its own close 
paired foundation model? Or do you think it's just there'll be a lot of open source models, there'll be integration with multiple third-party vendors? Like, does that does that alignment at all matter as we think about the future oligopoly world of the cloud providers? Like I said, I think it's a land grab and lots of people are trying to figure out what's going on. But Amazon has the anthropic um, alignment and investment as well, too. And so, you know, they're pretty close, although I think Google just announced recently announced uh, investment in anthropic as well. Um, I believe Microsoft is also, you know, they've got the open AI, but they've also said, hey, we're doing some of our own stuff. So I think it's unclear where how this is all going to shake out and who the winners are going to be. So I think everyone seems to be placing multiple bets from combination of part, you know, I, I think it's going to be built by partner. It's probably all do all three. From an end customer perspective, that makes a lot of sense because if you have an enterprise that's using your compute, there may be a variety of different models and approaches they want to take. And so it does seem like the monolithic world seems reasonably unlikely unless you're a model company worried about some competitive dynamic with a with the underlying um, cloud provider. But the flip side of it is all the cloud providers are also funding a lot of the different model companies. So, um, so that makes sense. It's not just the cloud providers are fun, are funding them, but it's also if you look at the marketplaces on the cloud providers. So like they have partnerships with all these people where, you know, to to get down your Azure AWS bill, you say, I'm going to spend this many millions of dollars on your cloud. Some of it's going to be I'm using it's I'm using raw compute or storage or whatever, but a good chunk of it is also like I'm going to buy this third party partner through your app marketplace and use that to satisfy my quota of you know how much I pledged it. So I think all of these models, um, business models, all intermesh. Alyssa, I don't think you will remember this conversation, or I'd be surprised if you did. But I asked you, I came to like ask you a question, maybe in your first year at Square about, uh, I think it was like some Hadoop-related thing. So this really dates um, this conversation now. But I was asking you about it, but it was some sort of like data infrastructure open source thing. And you just looked at me and you said, Sarah, Amazon loves open source. We make more money off open source than any of the open source companies do, right? And I think it's, I think, first of all, that was like the one of the most terrifying business conversations I've ever had. You were perfectly nice about it, but I was just like, oh my God, what am I doing doing these open source companies? She's right. This is terrible. Um, What do you, what do you think um, happens in that landscape of like the open source models? Um, Well, there's certainly demand, like there's strong customer demand for open source models, right? Um, for enterprise demand for it, right? Because it's uh, it's not quote black box. Um, you theoretically could in house it all if you wanted. Um, so I think you know anytime there's there's demand, you know the products will find a way into the marketplace. And anytime there's a passionate developer community who you know, is interested both in sort of giving to the community, but also it's a way to make your name as a, you know, as an engineer too, by participating in these projects and, you know, being a core committer or whatnot. You know, I think open source is going to continue to evolve. The question is, is, yeah, where, where and how do you make money off of it? Obviously, you know, there, there are some companies that, you know, have done well taking open source or some of the founders or, you know, the, uh, the project or whatever, and then start, you know, launching companies around it. I put, confluent um with kafka in in that bucket um but yeah there have been some others that have struggled you know who dupe was there for a while but kind of never never quite got the commercial piece working well um and i think just time not not enough then differentiation um relative to what the cloud providers could do um pick up and and go and you know i think one of the things 
with the cloud providers too, is because you have sort of default customer demand, you launch one of these services using the open source. In many cases, you'll ha you'll have existing customers that want to use it. And so then you're immediately getting customer feedback, you know, to help improve and tweak and then help tweak it on your infrastructure. And, you know, I think that's the, you know, that's the cat and mouse, but you know, there's certainly customer demand um, for open source in general and certainly um, uh, open source AI models um, right now. And so I think we'll see both. So the, the one other, um, you know, really uh, impressive association you have is being on the board of Intel. And there's obviously been a variety of different computation waves that have occurred over time, you know, and it feels like every wave of um, technology has an underlying uh, different sort of massive um, semiconductor company that emerges, right? And so we had uh, Intel and AMD for the microcomputer revolution. We had ARM and Qualcomm as part of the mobile revolution. Uh, NVIDIA, I think, has really emerged as a big driver on the GPU side and sort of the AI revolution. Um, how do you think about uh, startups in the AI semiconductor space and um, you know, other specific areas or paths that you think are most interesting or intriguing relative to those? I think your observation is right about each kind of wave there being, you know, a, a kind of a clear one and, t and two. Each wave, there is also a three and a four and a, you know, you can kind of go down there, but I think there are, you know, in semis, as in many, many industries, I do think there's the, you know, a kind of a standard, you know, number one, number two, um, kind of market position and it's really hard to be number three and you're dead if you're number four. And so I do think right now, you know, there's still I obviously NVIDIA is selling the most GPUs. That's fun. Yeah, that's driving, you know, a lot of AI. But um but I think there's still room. I don't think it's going to be a monopoly on the area. Um and you know I, I do think there will be a clear number two. Um and right now there's opportunities like for you know Different companies that are, they're, I think, running towards it and trying to, um, trying to take that position, and then perhaps over time, challenge number one. We're kind of going through the standard thing where you're as as you progress in each of these, the tooling goes up the stack. So you start to see some things where maybe things were more coded to the metal. You start to then, you know, the, it shifts to to tools, and that's part of what then creates an opportunity, you know, for one and two and that kind of thing as well too. That makes sense. Yeah. A lot of people talk about the defensibility of um, NVIDIA in part being due to CUDA and then some aspects of interconnect and things like that. Um, the other thing that I hear sometimes people talk about is just as there was so, sort of this very positive dynamic in the Wintel world, you know, Windows and Intel reinforcing each other. Maybe today that's kind of the GPU transformer world where GPUs are in part optimized now more and more for transformer based workloads. And transformers are obviously have been optimized by large armies of people relative to GPU. And so you may also have a virtuous cycle through that um, on a relative basis as sort of a second driver on top of what you're saying in terms of that software stack being really relevant or important. Yeah. Um, so it'll be interesting for sure to watch that. The two pieces have always kind of gone together, right? And, um, you know, and it's a push and the pull on both sides. Certainly, you know, having worked at Microsoft, you know, the, in the 90s, right, you were very close with, uh, with Intel at the time. On the uh, AI accelerator um, topic. It, it's really interesting. Like, I think the the view of many of the AI semi startups is that actually uh, GPUs they're really good at matrix multiplication, but they're not specifically tuned to transformers architectures. Um, but it's very hard to make long term bets in AI right now 
with how quickly everything is changing. Like even from an architectural perspective, I think people are talking about the limitations of um, uh, the attention mechanisms that we have and experimenting on the research side with different architectures in a way that they were not three months ago. And if you had asked me, I'd be curious if there's like interesting survey data around this. We can look for it or or ask researchers. But if you'd asked me – how committed are people to Transformers as the dominant architecture uh, at the end of 2023? I'd say very committed, and I feel less confident about that today. Yeah, I mean, anytime you're in a, in a phase of kind of rapid change, right? You know, they love the Jeff Bezos quote, you know, focus on things that, you know, you know will not change um, because, you know, there's going to be so many, uh, like trying to make a bet on things that, you know, are not just fundamentally true. You're gambling at some level. Um, what I what I think is interesting, a lot of this stuff, though, is, um, again, technology often goes through these kind of cycles where what you see is you see scale up, you know, scale up architectures to a play, point, and then you reach some sort of a tipping point where you just can't, you're not making as much as much process on sort of a, a scale up architecture. And so then you start to break it down and you kind of scale out and then it kind of re Anyway, so we've been through these curves multiple times. I think what's sort of interesting in the in the semi space, in many ways, it's been kind of a scale up model for years. And I think part of what's happening and it's already underway, right? But you're starting to see, you know, more, yeah, more of these chiplet designs, more use of advanced packaging. And like, and it's really starting to look more like, in some ways, almost like a, you know, a microservices architecture, whatever you draw the software analogy. But, but I think one of the things about one of the reasons, you know, kind of a, a system design architecture is interesting is because um, in some ways it allows you to predict it smaller and like you, you, you can tune and predict smaller components and you can rip out and replace components rather than having to kind of change the whole thing. And so I think we're, we're, we're definitely moving towards more and more modular architectures. And I think that's going to give more and more flexibility, which then I think can help accelerate the innovation cycle as well. It also feels like at this point of any innovation cycle, there's always, um, uh, a ton of experimentation that happens and you know that that happened uh i think on everything from social products to more recently with crypto where there was all these different l1s that were invented to be sort of scalability alternatives to ethereum and then it moved into l2 and it just feels like every wave of computing you suddenly have this burst of well this thing is really working let's try five other things that could work potentially better and then you know I, it feels like 90 percent of the time it collapses back to the original <laughs> thing that you just keep scaling it or whatever but we'll see um i guess darwin you know, you've had this, yeah, yeah yeah darwin selects for the thing that keeps going so a lot wants to bring back the monolith <laughs> yeah i love code monoliths and uh i really love uh no i'm just kidding um you know you've had i think one of the most impressive careers in technology in all sorts of different ways you've been involved with some of the most important companies in the world in literally every decade that you've operated, you've been at you. um, the most or one of the most important companies. What's next? Like, how <laughs> do you think about the next <laughs> couple of years, the next decade? Um, I don't know. Uh, it's a good question. It's one I'm working on figuring out. Um, my husband retired from work two years ago. And for the last two years, he'd been like, Alyssa, come out and play with me. Come play with me. You know, I'm like, ha. Ah. <laughs> I'm working. I like it. I'm working 78 <laughs> hours a week. Right? It's like, what are you doing, girl? You know. So, um, uh, and I'm like, well, <laughs> um, 
So, you know, I think obviously I like, I, I love technology. I love deep technology. Square was super interesting. It was the highest up the stack I'd ever really worked. It was the first time ever working on, you know, financial stuff, Intel and Confluent and whatnot. You kind of helped scratch the itch. Of, I still like fundamental technology, like it's fundamental, right? I mean, there's something, there's something to it. And so still reading stuff, still like, you know, I watched the, you know, watch the open AI dev day, right? You know, tinkering around, but he's, my husband's trying to keep me as busy as possible <laughs> and running around with him. So we'll see. I don't know. Um, I don't know if this is going to be a permanent retirement or, a, you know, or a, sabbat- you know, a, a sabbatical kind of thing. Don't know. We'll see. But I'd love to hear, like, what are you guys most excited about in this space? If you could pick kind of one thing, what are you, you know, for the next year ahead, what do you, what do you hope to see or, you know, what do you hope to, you know, be involved with? I'm going to make a lot go. I actually invested in all of the good ideas this year, so I'm going to take the next year off. She's also announcing her retirement at the same time. Half decades in, I'm done. Yeah, she's just over with it. You know, if you basically look at the last year, and it's only been a year since ChatGPT came out, right? And it's been a year and change since MidJourney and Stable Diffusion came out. And so I think really the last year has just been everybody waking up to the opportunity of what could happen with generative AI. I think there's been an enormous amount of investment in the foundation model side, and I still think there's lots of open questions in terms of where does that all go. But I think we know at least a handful of who the incumbents, at least in the next couple years, will be. Maybe not forever, but at least for the next three, four years. You're starting to see the infrastructure side start to get filled out in different ways. And for me, the area that is still wide open is just all the various applications, both on the B2B side as well as the consumer side. And there's an enormous amount of white space there and a lot of open things to do. And so I think that's just a huge transition that's coming, both in terms of incumbents adopting AI to their existing workflows, as well as a huge chunk of the services economy being converted into into code. And in this case, instead of traditional software being converted into into AI. And so I think that's probably the story of the next two, three years. I'm I'm excited about it. I'm not actually going to take the next year off. I I think we're very early in the exploit cycle. Like one of the things that has been even um, surprising over the last six months is when you are doing a lot of very new things with technology, um, uh, there's a rush to try them once it has been proven. My favorite example would be like eight by eight, like diffusion model image generation and how far we have come in the last two years from when people said like, oh, look, this is possible. But the quality, the controllability, the usefulness of this is like not even close. And even a few months ago, like you'd have leading researchers that say like, ah, video, like who knows if, you know, that that's a that's a huge number of technical problems that feel unsolvable. And um, I think you increasingly see on um, the creative fronts, but many different applications, like how quickly you can get over some um, some minimum quality that is useful, right? And it takes people who are playing with GPT-2 or like an 8 by 8 image to picture what quality and scale improvement can um, can happen. But I think a lot of really smart engineers are paying attention to that now. And I think that'll accelerate the exploit cycle a lot. So, um, it, you know, it's, it's new UI. Um, it's a lot of, as you were talking about, uh, um, latent demand. So it's not as obvious where you're not like, oh, like I'm just going to replace this existing software category. But I, I'm really excited that a lot of that experimentation is going to happen in a more sophisticated way at the application layer next year. And you get to like ride the capability curve too. So um, no, no, no retirement this next year. Alyssa, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Sarah. Find us on Twitter at No Priors Pod. Subscribe to our YouTube channel if you want to see our faces. 
follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. That way you get a new episode every week. And sign up for emails or find transcripts for every episode at no-priors.com.